Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. Announcement time! I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. Right now, pre-orders are my love language, and I'd really appreciate if you click on one of the links in the show notes to make sure you get the earliest copy of Chess Queens. With a big deadline behind me, I'll be upping the grid frequency. And with that in mind, let's get in to this episode's special guest. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. I'm your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and today my guest is streamer and PokerStars ambassador, Keith Becker. And we're gonna be talking about a hand he played in the PokerStars Winter Series. Keith started building his bankroll on stars when PokerStars PA launched about two and a half years ago, allowing him to combine family, a nine to five, and poker. And he is coming off a winter series win. The hand in question came from that series. And he had King 10 offsuit in an iconic small blind versus button spot. So the man who goes by accidental grenade on Twitch and <laughs> whoops boom on Twitter and stars, either way, coming in with a bang, Keith Becker, welcome to the grid. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting to finally get you on the show. And this hand came from the series that you won an event in. And that was a big goal for you, right? It was my unicorn for, for a little bit here. You know, I, I had been chasing a series win. had had a lot of uh, regular tournament wins on PokerStars Pennsylvania. Uh, and had been playing since launch, but hadn't captured a, a series win. And finally was able to capture one in a $75 deep stack supersonic uh, winter series event. Took it down to the wire. It was like the day before the series ended, I think. It was the, the Sunday, the main event Sunday. Yeah. That's the way to do it. You know, I tried my hand at streaming for a few months in the beginning of the pandemic, and I really enjoyed it. And one thing for people who don't stream, and that's where they understand how important that W is, right? It's not just about the money. It's yeah. about your fans kind of coming together and cheering you on as you win the big trophy, the virtual trophy. I tuned into a couple of your other episodes, and I know, I know GJ, Reggie, uh, for instance, was really talking about this with streamers. It's interesting. There's different types of viewers, right? I'm lucky to have, and I think a lot of streamers are lucky to have the, your core audience that'll watch you just no matter what. They're just there from minute one or whenever they can be watching you play whatever. But there are some viewers who just look for that final table in the title or look for, you know, look for the deep run. And so people turn out and get really excited for those deep spots. It is really exciting. It's like the excitement of being deep in a tournament, but sur supercharged because you're also feeding off all of your fans. Yeah. That's fantastic. So the hand in question was from another event in the winter series. 
And I thought that this one was a really interesting one because it is such an important spot. Can you set up um, where in the tournament this took place? Like how many bigs you had and what you were thinking about preflop? So we're fairly early in the tournament. We're past the the very early levels, but we're pretty deep. Um, we're about 50 big blinds effective, I think. So you and I have something on common. We both play on, on PokerStars PA. I don't have wear as many hats. Well, I don't know. I don't wear as many hats in the uh, content creation sphere as you do. So I, I play, I grind a lot on PokerStars PA, whereas you, congratulations, by the way, I heard you've, you've got two book deals coming in 20... 20- this year and then in 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. The Chess Queens <laughs> is coming out basically um, a week or so after this episode. And then I have another book reset all about how do you can use games to improve your life um, in 2024. Yeah. Indeed. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that is just to say, like, I, I play a ton on PokerStars PA, right? And so it's this very casual player base that I'm sure you've kind of picked on or picked up on, right? Like it's and maybe picked on. <laughs> Pretty and slip there. <laughs> so we're about 50 big blinds deep. And uh, we come in with a three bet, as you said, in this uh, somewhat iconic spot. The small blind versus button, we just get to three bet a lot. One of the things I found on like a, a very casual field, as I mentioned, like PokerStars Pennsylvania or a lot of the PokerStars USA clients, right? People have not play poker in a very long time. It's not really like in the thick of like study and grind and GTO, like some other players on other clients are and things like that. And there's a very eclectic player base, but there's a lot of like casual recreational players. And we get to three bet in those fields, I think with like impunity, <laughs> honestly. One of the things about a more recreational field is that they, they under three bet, I think to begin with, and then they vastly under four bet. So we sort of can just, come at a button raise because they're opening maybe close to as wide as they should be, but they're not. I think I looked at this in, um, I work with uh, Ryan LaPlante, who I believe you had on the podcast before uh, with uh, Learn Pro Poker. And I, I pulled it up in Range Trainer Pro and the button is supposed to four bet jam on us with, you know, wheel ace, suited wheel aces at some frequency, like queen jack suited, jack 10 suited, pocket twos. I can tell you that nobody's doing this. <laughs> in, uh, I believe this was a smaller buy-in on, uh, on PokerStars PA. So it's an interesting spot from like an, an exploit standpoint where uh, we deviate a lot, I think, from some, in some spots with things like this. Now, King 10 is a three bet, I think, at some frequency. It's not like outlandish, but I, I do think we get to just do that a lot and it's kind of fun. I talked about this with my stream recently. I say we a lot on stream. I don't know if you think that's weird. <laughs> no. I always refer to spots as we. I, I like refer to my community. I know some people, I've heard people, people go off on everything on like Twitter, right? But I've heard some people think it's like weird to try to include your community in a, um, such an individualistic competitive game, but. No, I love it. And there's, I, there's so many different ways to interpret it. Like I was interpreted as maybe you and Nigo, because I know you guys are really good friends. Yeah. And then I know you're a family man. So <laughs> your wife is incredibly awesome and supportive. So I was like, well, maybe, yeah, you, mean, for sure, for maybe sure. you mean your family and maybe you mean your community. <laughs> There's so many ways to, to interpret it. Yeah, I'm very fortunate on, on all those fronts, for sure, for sure. It's a community, not just a, a game. But in this spot, of course, you're, you're trying to be aggressive and yeah. you know, take every, every edge. And yeah, King 10 off, I think in theory, would be a mixed spot. But you're basically saying 
um, mix between calling and three betting, but you're saying like hundred yeah. percent of the time you're three betting in this. Yeah, we can, we can dial it up, especially against like general population, but you do have to be careful because the thing about a casual player base is that you have extremes on all of the casual prongs, I guess, not even both ends of the spectrum, like every prong of the diagram, like between like every quadrant, you got loose, passive, loose, aggressive, you got tight, passive and tight, aggressive, right? It's very important, I think, on these in these more casual fields to really note who you're playing against, right? Like there might be some players who raise so tight, even from late position, that three betting them is risky with weaker holdings, you know? <laughs> like, so it's very important to note take. And I say these things like it's really important to, to three bet wire. It's really important to note take. Streaming is tough. Streaming is, is minus EV and I play distracted as is what it comes down to. Honestly, I don't note take as much as I should. And I don't, I was thinking about this the other day and I was actually talking to Nio. So for those of you out there in the audience, Nio is my fellow ambassador on PokerStars Pennsylvania. We've been doing a dual stream together for about a year and a half now. I was talking to him about this and I was saying that I have this tendency to my default play and I'm, that I've tried to break out of and learn to be more aggressive is like kind of tight passive, definitely tight and on the passive side. And the more distracted I am when streaming, the more I'm into the chat banter, the more I'm into multi-tabling a ton of tables and monitoring what's going on in the stream and all that stuff, I tend to just default to my passive lines. And I'm sure in the, in the mix, I'm not being as aggressive as I should, but I'm working on it. I'm getting better, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, that's incredibly hard. Streaming is so difficult. And you know that's why I'm sure you have to do a good job of tracking your frequencies because if you're in the middle of having an amazing conversation and yeah. the vibe and the music is, is great right. and you get a hand that's borderline, you might default to the most passive strategy. Like if you're choosing between folding and calling, you'll fold. If you're choosing right. between raising and calling, you'll call. And it's very easy for those places where you're supposed to be mixing to become just 100% passive line in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> that's poker, you know, finding that right frequency, not just making the right play. And so much respect for people who are able to play at an elite level like Lexa Veldhaus, despite yeah. also streaming. It's um, way, way more difficult, I think. I, to me, it's like a comparison to um, live poker where somebody is chatting up a storm and being like the class clown or the table clown <laughs> and also playing really, really good poker. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's really fascinating. That is not easy. People used to say that Daniel Nuranu was the one to do that the best. And I'm not really sure now who's out there like constantly chat boxing and also playing optimal poker it's incredibly difficult right but in streaming it's like a supercharged version of that for sure <laughs> so king 10 you know is a really interesting hand for me as well because i i'm sure a lot of amateur players struggle with this hand because it's a borderline hand in so many situations right right we, we talked about here you either three bet or call within and there's certainly cases where you either call or fold with it as well mm -hmm. i mean different spots and yeah i think that it makes it a really interesting hand some people might think it's like kind of fishy to think about poker in that way like specific hands because you're always supposed to be thinking about range nobody would ever make content about specific hands of poker who would do that i know right <laughs> <laughs> but to me it's not always fishy because a lot of times you're looking for the edge hand right the hand that's like on the edge of the grid yeah right that's often going to be king 10 off or like ace nine off and then, like we were saying, going back to like the the casual field kind of thing, the edge hands in some at some tables that are a little, little bit harder or if a little bit more aggressive, you might cut off some of those edge hands from your three bet, right? But maybe in this casual field, you actually add hands 
to the the fringes, right? And so King 10 becomes not the fringe anymore. But yeah, no matter what, when there's a lot of flops, a lot of runouts with this hand where we're not thrilled, right? Like when we flop 10 high in a three bet pot, you know, you're okay. They still do have over pairs. They can flop sets. We're very vulnerable. You know, you're not like fist bumping with King 10. You're, you're rarely fist pumping with King 10. It's hard to, hard to flop really strong with this hand. But that's another thing that lends itself towards three betting as well to try to take it down pre-flop. And you did um, get a call because otherwise yes. I mean, we don't have a lot of hands on the grid where somebody three bets. <laughs> yeah, if it was just a three bet and fold, yeah, it would, it would kind of take the wind out of the sails a little bit, I would think. Yeah, so we did get a call. And from there, I believe I proceeded with just a, a pretty standard post-flop C-bet sizing. So out of position, we flop uh, jack six, three with two hearts. Now we don't hold a heart in our hand. We have king 10 off suit without a heart. Your suits didn't match up with anything on the board. <laughs> no. So again, yeah, not, not, not fist bumping, not thrilled. we're like, yeah, okay, when, when will this hand end, please? <laughs> Essentially. And we do get a call uh, of the C-bet as well. So you bet about 25% pot. Yeah, I think roughly about 30% pot, somewhere in there. Yeah. And now on the turn, you get a three to the flush, right? The seven of hearts peels. Yeah, the seven of hearts peels off on the turn. And um, what did you think about here? And yeah, just tell me what your thoughts were now, considering your earlier assessment that the player might be um, too tight, but then they did call your flop bet. So we know that on jack six, three, they can float us with a, a ton of different hands, right? Like they'll float a lot of high cards. They'll float, a lot of opponents will float any ASEX with the two cards being above six, meaning two overs to the bottom two on the board, if that makes sense. Um, and especially with the Ace of Hearts, where they could pick up a backdoor flush draw, which could have been what happened here. We basically know that our opponent can be floating very wide here and not necessarily still have a strong hand, but we also know that they can have decently strong hands. They can have pairs. They can have still hold the Ace of Hearts, like I said, which is ahead of us for now, ahead of us now. And you know, if a heart peels off, very much ahead of us. I thought I could still find potentially find a way to attack this pot on some rivers. I'm getting better at telling the story of a hand. I am pretty new to the whole approaching poker from a, a really strong theory standpoint. So I played a lot of poker in my young days, like pre-Black Friday times, and then uh, sort of fell off with poker for a long time and didn't really pick it back up until... PokerStars launched in Pennsylvania in uh, November of 2019. So I have this like kind of large gap in my, in my poker knowledge. Building that sort of like story of a hand from a uh, range versus range standpoint is still something that doesn't come naturally to me, honestly. But in the end, you decided to check here. And it sounds like you're saying that part of that was because you felt like the story made more sense for you to check. I think when I'm three betting strong here, I can have a lot of pairs with a single heart, high cards with a with a single heart that want to maybe see a a river card and not necessarily inflate the pot huge. I did opt to go for a check sort of to um to pot control and maybe delay my attack to certain river cards yeah, as well. Yeah, that certainly seems to make sense especially as you're describing this opponent and they did check back. They did give us a check back. And then the six of hearts peeled off on the river. Ooh, so the six of hearts making a four flush and putting a second six out on the board. So it's the three of hearts, six right. of diamonds, jack of hearts, seven of hearts, and six of hearts. So that's a very uh, dynamic card, as we say, right? It changes the winning hands quite a bit, right? <laughs> it brings in all the flushes. 
And any pair that had a set now becomes a full house. So I did decide to attack here. And this was sort of an exploitative, small sizing. And looking back on this, I, I wonder if even I could go smaller than this, <laughs> to be quite honest. Uh, but I chose a, a pretty small sizing. I bet 2,400 into uh, an 8,600 chip pot. And my thinking here was, I like I said, I thought my opponent could float uh, flop with a lot of cards that don't contain a heart, like a lot of high ace-x hands, even like a king-queen, king-10, things like that. I, obviously, we block the heck out of king-10 because we have king-10, but it still exists in their range. And um, all the middling pairs. And I really don't think that players see this kind of bet as a bluff and attack it as such, nor do they really attack it for value unless they truly have nuts. <laughs> I think in a casual field, I, I don't even know if players really raise here with the king of hearts too much. Like, I think they raise the ace of hearts and full houses. So if they raise, they just have it and we go like, okay, well... <laughs> I think we could even fold out some, you know, some low flushes for sure. If they had like ace eight with the eight of hearts, like we could, we could fold out that hand on the river and things like that uh, with a bet like this. And he did fold. So you didn't find out what he had, right? Actually, I did find out what he had is the interesting wrinkle because this was a, a new friend of the stream. Oh, nice. <laughs> and he said that he put a crying emoji in the chat and he said he had eight, eight with, without the eight of hearts, no heart. Without the eight of hearts. Right. So obviously it's a tough call for him on the river. And those are the kind of hands that we were we were targeting to, to fold out, of course. He had about 45 big blinds pre-flop, so probably should have just jammed it in. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, no, calling is also okay, but... Yeah, I think 8-8 I think eight, eight is, is a mix at like 50 big blinds deep, could jam. Especially if you feel like you might be liable to overfold, you know, it's not a bad spot to just stick it in there. It's early in the tournament, though, still rebuy period, right? I think if anything, if I were this player on the other end with eights, I maybe would have attacked the turn, feeling vulnerable to the flush coming in. Yeah, interesting spot for sure. And the pair of eights, did he actually show you them or did he just tell you? He didn't show them on the table. There is a possibility that he was lying, but I find that my stream is pretty, is pretty intimate and like kind of close knit. And I trust them for the most part. I think I think chat kind of follows the streamer, especially when you're a smaller streamer. And I I do sort of trust my uh, my opponents for, for the most part. Um, but I could be a total fool for doing so. <laughs> he did not show me the hand. You know, I have a theory about that actually. Um, that people like to lie by a small amount. I'm not saying that this guy was lying. Right, right. I'm just saying that, like in general, I feel like when people lie, um, they often lie by a small amount. And there's there's a book by um, Dan Ariely, who's a psychologist, um, professor, and yeah. he talks about that a lot too, that people tend to cheat and lie. Just a little bit. Yeah. And, and not that it's unethical in poker. Like if somebody asks you what they have, like you're allowed to make up a story, really. I think it's completely within bounds. But like a lot of times, like I've noticed that I was doing this when I started playing poker more seriously. Like somebody would ask me what I folded. And if it was tens, I would say nine. If it was like a king five or something and some situation where blind versus blind, where I flop the five, I might say like queen five, just yeah. all sorts of small lies for some reason. It's very... I could see that being either direction too. Like you might want people to think your hand was a little bit better than it yeah. was or a little bit worse than it was. Yeah. I think it's because it turns the tables a little bit. Like you know what you have and then you want to get the reaction. And since it almost like you're getting like a bit of an informational advantage because like you find out how they perceive the hand that you said you folded and you know what you actually folded. 
So yeah, kind of an interesting mind game there. But once I realized that I did it... All of a sudden, you started mistrusting everyone else, right? <laughs> people confided to me that they did that too. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, then I think I stopped doing it at that point because I didn't feel so original anymore. <laughs> I don't know that I have. I, I wouldn't put it past myself. I'm pretty competitive. So if I thought I could get an edge, you know, I, I don't think lying about what you had is illegal. Maybe people might frown upon it, but <laughs> I, I don't think that I really have, though. I think I normally just don't say anything or I tell the truth. I think if it's a friend or a coach, it's not cool. But if somebody at a live table, oh yeah, yeah, if somebody yeah. at a live table is asking you what you had right after a hand, it's like I feel like they you're allowed to lie because if you tell the truth, you're just giving them information, right? Yeah, there's always that in the hallway or by the bathroom after the game, right? Where somebody's like, "Hey, what'd you have in that hand? I need to know." Like they, that's when they just need to know. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Even then, I think you can lie because you're still playing. You still might be playing them later. Oh, you mean if you've been moved to another table or somebody got I meant knocked like, out? Yeah, or like after the table breaks and you're all going home or or if it's a tournament, you know, it's after you've both busted out or something. Yeah, at that point, people are much more likely to tell the truth. I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. It's hard to tell, though. I mean, it's poker players. Who knows? Very shrewd bunch. So you um won the hand. He folded. You felt great because... This is probably the kind of spot that you've been studying a lot. Like, I know that when I'm pressed for time, I always look at button versus big blind or button versus small blind because... It's a good place to... uh, It's an easy place to squeeze out some EV, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's a profitable spot. You know you're going to be in those spots a lot. And because ranges are wide, sometimes the correct things to do are less intuitive than, you know, like under the gun. And more fun. More fun. Three betting is more fun than just you know, playing tight from under the gun or whatever. So yeah, when I have limited study time, I'll kind of go to those spots. So I figured you've probably been working on this and then you got a kind of interesting incarnation of it in this hand. Oh yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah, it's, it's always nice. Um, I, I don't have a ton of time to study. I, I like to say like, I've learned to settle for suboptimal. You know, I, I, I like most poker players, I love to optimize every little bit of my life. But I think you mentioned it leading into the podcast. I work a regular daytime job. I have a beautiful three-year-old little girl and now as a PokerStars ambassador, I, I squeeze out time. I've worked out after the stream starting at like 1130. I clean up the house over breaks and I squeeze in study time whenever I can. <laughs> I've played satellites and My Little Pony at the same time. You got a lot going on. Time <laughs> management skills. What's your number one time management tip? I have an amazing wife who helps me manage my time, honestly. She helps so much. I I would be lost without her. No, but I think, honestly, I think like time management for me, I just sort of realized that I had to just do things when I had the time and just go at them. I don't really know how to describe it. When I was younger and before I had Eden was the the big catalyst, I used to, you know, try to optimize everything. Like I said, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to like eat this. And then when the, when the energy spike hits, I'm going to work out at the perfect time and I'd have all this stuff lined up. And now I'm just like, I have 40 minutes. I need to work out right now. It doesn't matter what I feel like. <laughs> so it's just, uh, I don't know. Necessity is the mother of invention, I guess. Like it just sort of drives me to, uh, to get things done as effectively as I can, as quickly as I can at times. The, uh, the mother of efficiency in this case. Love it. <laughs> How'd you study this kind of spot? Like were you three bed and then bet small on the flop and end up uh, to the river with this small bet size. Is this the kind of thing that you had worked on either on your own or with your with Ryan and Learn Pro Poker? I go to some of the Learn Pro Poker. They have some um, Zoom uh, group chats where people can submit hands and goes through them piece by piece. And then uh, 
I've done a bunch of studying in uh, Range Trainer Post Flop, which is their their post flop trainer tool as well for spots like this. And they've got a nice. Um, speaking of efficiency and time, they've got a nice sort of like uh, quiz mode where you can just like it'll it'll give you you pick your your stack depth and your two positions for the hand, and it, you could pick like small blind versus button in a three bet pot, and it'll just give you fifty examples and it'll quiz you every street and you just see how many you get right and just keep drilling until the number of incorrect answers goes down, hopefully. <laughs> Similar to like DTO and, um, yeah. you know, simple post-flop trainer. Yeah. And in these cases, they're usually using GTO ranges. Yeah. Solved ranges. Yeah. They're building out their, their database. Yep. By the way, for those of you who want the refresher, it's the three, six, jack, seven, six with uh, four hearts there. So you're kind of trying to find out what the default is and then go from there. Um, but from an exploitative point of view, it sounds like you wanted to bet small because you figured their calling range was inelastic to sizing. Is that part of it? I think so. And I think, like I said, I think maybe I could even size smaller on, on this river. I don't know how small, you know, there's, there's probably a line somewhere. Yeah, I just don't think players are doing their minimum calling range that they should have here and are almost never raising in this spot. Work does pay off, I think, even if you have to um, do it um, in between all these other things you're doing. So tell me about your day job. What's what's your day job like? Uh, so I work in software development and product management uh, for a healthcare company. I keep my two lives pretty separate, but I'm very fortunate to have a daytime job that is pretty much just that, just a daytime job, which affords me the opportunity to be an ambassador for PokerStars in the night times. I am very occasionally on call at night at a, a week spurt at a time, but I'm able to manage that as well. I've been um, work from home for a while now, and it looks like I'll probably still be work from home till at least like April and then maybe going back in like a hybrid capacity into the office. It must be great for your poker um, and for your family life and your workouts that you squeeze in to work from home. I don't always have the opportunity to do any of that kind of like workout stuff during the day, but I do get to take breaks and stomp around with my little girl, which is, I wouldn't trade it for anything. She's, she's absolutely my world. I've been teaching her. We've been doing like memory games recently. She learned uh, some of the poker, like playing card names. She brought us cards the other day and said, I was the king, mommy's the queen. And she said, and I'm the jack. And she gave herself a jack. So she's learning the cards. She calls every spade a poker stars, though, because I wear the patch and the poker stars spade. Adorable. Oh, my gosh. I've seen <laughs> videos of her. And have you taught her chess yet? I am a total noob to chess, Jen. I'm, I'm not good. Perfect. You can teach her and she'll beat you a couple years later. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We could go that route. I tried, I tried downloading one of them, LieChess or Chess.com or both and doing some puzzles and I'm not there yet. Maybe someday, though. Sounds like you have tons of time, not... <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, just add a new hobby. Where do you fall in the debate that's kind of, you know, so present in the world right now about hybrid versus remote? Because it sounds like for you, the remote situation is just so beautiful because family yeah. time and, you know, the ability to be as efficient and productive as possible. I think it could and should be up to individuals ideally but i definitely thrived in uh in remote work and it's and it's my preference i feel like i'm able to be just as effective at home and um you know i mean i am an exception compared to some maybe because i'm a total power user obviously as i sit here in front of four monitors and studio lights and you know i have a huge desk and like the, the setup that's like separate from my house so I, i'm fortunate in that sense i have a separate streaming room that i also use as my office during the daytime 
that does lead to me spending way too much time sitting. So I've been trying to be uh, more active. I've been weightlifting recently and trying to throw in some, some cardio when I can as well. But yeah, I mean, I definitely prefer working remotely. You're pretty far removed from a standard corporate type job at this point or? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's just different because I used to travel a lot and now I'm home a lot, but I definitely think that you brought up two really important points. One is that it can actually lead to workaholicism. I think in the beginning people were like, oh, yeah. people are going to be working from home and just like, you know, goofing <laughs> off. And actually they're like, oh no, <laughs> like people are just going to get burned out because they're sitting at their computers all day. So the, the opposite in a lot of cases. And then also the fact is that for some people it's great, but for some, if they don't have like the space and the equipment, it's actually like a negative because right. they have to like carve out that area especially for people who live in like cities where rents are really high yeah or if you have to be in an apartment or something and still do have children or something like that like i mean if eden was in the same room as me i don't know that i would get much work done because she she is all about her dad right now <laughs> she's a daddy's girl nice and how, how do your coworkers feel about poker do they think it's super cool or do they ask you if you count cards uh yeah there's always some of that but i don't really talk about the ambassadorship and i don't really know that no one's ever really asked me about it from uh, from my work at work. So I don't, it's pretty much separate. <laughs> oh, you don't talk about it? Not to keep it secret, like intentionally, but I just, it always felt like a weird thing to say like, oh, hey, by the way, everyone on this Zoom call, I'm a PokerStars ambassador. So my day-to-day -day coworkers don't really know that I do this, to be quite honest. You have a relatively common name, perhaps. So like, it's not like Google will like just show all your poker accomplishments and streams and social media profiles. Jennifer Shahadi, it's always, it's always going to be a little, a little different. <laughs> yeah. That's nice though, that you can combine all of it. Have you ever thought or fantasized about just being full-time poker or do you think you would not like that? It's interesting. You know, people refer to us, Nio and myself have, have both are like, we still have this awkward uncomfortability with being called like poker stars pros because like, until I would earn enough money from just poker itself to like support myself and my family, I wouldn't, I don't feel comfortable calling myself a pro. So I prefer the, I think sometimes interchangeably used poker stars team online or poker stars ambassador. I'm very like, I have to prove myself to myself. <laughs> A viewer in my stream once described my game and my philosophy as like all ego and no ego. I don't like the ego and bravado that like permeates poker. And I try to steer clear of that as much as possible. But I am very adamant about like proving myself at every stake level, moving up. And I like don't take shot takes. I've like declined investment from people who believe in me because I don't feel like I'm ready to play in like certain stakes and things like that. But I would love to go to be like a full-time content creator. It's just not quite there. I have a, a very important variable named Eden, <laughs> my three-year-old, that keeps me from making decisions that I would feel are in any way, you know, irresponsible, I guess. Maybe someday. For now, I'm, I'm making it work. It's great that you're able to pursue your passion while also having stability. Yeah. You know, that's, that's always very difficult, right? Like you either are going out and taking risks or you have stability. Being able to do both at once requires a lot of planning or rich parents <laughs> or, <Yeah. laughs> or luck. And I'm very fortunate. I mean, we have savings and like, if I, if I tried to make the leap, I wouldn't be, you know, immediately destitute or something like that, but I still, I, I want to do it right. 
And one of your goals you mentioned um, coming in to Poker Stars as an ambassador was to make other people feel welcome in the community. Um, you said break down the walls for those new to poker and bring more people to the game. Tell us what you mean by that. I have a distaste for bravado, ego, gatekeeping that happens in poker. And I know, I know you've experienced some of that in chess probably as well. I know chess has a reputation for the um, elitism and gate, gatekeeping and things like that. And I just want to encourage more people to play this great game. Like the more people play, the more the game grows, the more states come on board, hopefully in the U.S. would be something that I think we could all come together. And if we get everyone excited about poker and part of getting everyone excited means letting everyone play and encouraging everyone to play. So I, I try to keep my chat as welcoming, as open, as positive as possible. Now, I, unlike my, my partner, Nio on PokerStars PA, I will sometimes tell people off if they're annoying, <laughs> if they're jerks, or I will, you know, I use vulgar language and I have a somewhat dirty sense of humor. He runs a very, very clean chat. And that's another way to be inclusive. So more power to him there. I, it's just not how I'm built. So I can't really turn off that sense of humor sometimes. The one thing I never do is engage in anything hateful or, or let anyone in my chat engage in anything hateful. And I just try to do what I can, use my platform the way I can. Casey and I designed a clothing line of poker clothing for Bad Beat Clothing, which is um, it's pride clothing. And the clothing, the benefit, the proceeds from the clothing go to the LGBTQ Freedom Front, Freedom Fund, which is a fund that accrues money for bail for um, LGBTQ individuals because they're over jailed and you know, mistreated disproportionately. So just things like that. We try to, I try to do what I can. It's a little bit touchy sometimes, honestly, because I, I'm very cognizant and very aware of coming off of, I'm not like afraid of getting canceled or whatever, but I'm very cognizant of not wanting to come off as like, I'm a white guy and here's how, you know, minorities should act. Like I don't ever want to be that way. Right. But I want to be inclusive and I want to encourage people to, I want to be welcoming and grow the game and, and be, be not only a poker entertainer, poker streamer, but a member of the poker community who's helping, you know, helping it along for good, I suppose. How did you get involved in this particular cause, the LGBTQ community and helping them with uh, bail? I've worked with, um, I've worked with Bad Beat Clothing for a while. I've designed a, just a bunch of different products because I just wanted some of my own merchandise. People in, in chat wanted like stuff to wear. I thought I had some fun ideas. I made this Plus EV mug. It's a mug for coffee and tea and it says Plus EV on it. So I've designed, I had designed a lot of products for them and pride month was coming up and we saw like a, a lot of pride uh, merchandise and it's just i just believe in everyone should have equality and we should move towards that as much as possible i think way too many people think we're past that or it's been solved which is absolutely ridiculous there's still so much work to do and it's a fight that will never end and yes we just looked for we wanted the we wanted the proceeds from that merchandise once we designed it to go to something worthwhile. And I thought the Freedom Fund was was a really neat way to help some people. Yeah, it's cool because it's like attacking two social ills at once, you know, the, right. the homophobia and transphobia, as well as the messed up um, regressive bail system. Right. It's sad that the two uh, ways of repressing people overlap so easily, but it's true. Yeah. yeah, well, it happens a lot that there's those intersections, you know, because mm -hmm. systems are not built for the people who are marginalized. Not only are they mar marginalized in their regular everyday lives, but if they come across the s systemic issues, they also get punished. 
Um, I'm actually playing in a poker tournament for Athlete Ally, which is um, it's a charity poker tournament for, for Athlete Ally, which is an organization that um, promotes uh, LGBTQ inclusion in sports. I think poker is doing a better job than a lot of fields. You know, chess is, is actually much tougher. It seems like in chess, we have a lot more work to do in that area. Yeah. Uh, and I think a part of that is because chess is such an international game and some of the tournaments are held in places that have really, really bad LGBTQ records. When I play in that tournament, when I, I think about chess even more than poker, but you're right. I mean, that's a great cause to use your voice to promote. Yeah, I, I'd like to do more. It's one of my, I, I wrote up some sort of goals for the year. And one of them was to hopefully use my platform for even more of those. But those those things, you know, it's time is the most precious resource I have. And it's it's those things take time to plan the the charity streams or or merchandise took a while to design those kind of things. But I'd like to do more. How do you do the product merchandise? Is that something you do with your day job as well? So the merch is, um, there's a site called Bad Beat Clothing. Um, I actually, when I was growing as a streamer, uh, I was part of a stream team called Bad Beat TV. And I would, uh, once a week, I would stream on, not on my own Twitch channel, on a channel called Bad Beat TV, twitch.tv slash Bad Beat TV. And I got to know some smaller streamers like myself. And uh, the person who runs that channel also owns Bad Beat Clothing. And I got to know uh, him and my wife got to know him and we started working with him to handle some of his uh, social media, which we still uh, help out with doing a lot of social media posts and, and interactions for them and designing merchandise as well. My wife works on a lot of their female clothing designs and I've got my own merch and then the pride stuff and I occasionally help out with other designs as well. Just adding adding hats wherever I can, every part of my head. Something you found out that you were pretty <laughs> good at just naturally. I do enjoy design for sure. Did you get an A in art in school? <laughs> I did not. I can't actually construct the design or draw anything myself, but I, I can come up with ideas and sort of see it. And, and my wife can draw it or, or the Abbey Clothing has, they have artists who can kind of bring it to life. I'm much better at like coming up with like concepts or slogans or things like that. Yeah. The only C I got in school was an art. Now I have work in museums. But... <laughs> I'm with you there. I, I can, I can write, I can put words together very, very well, but traditional art I could never do. You know, one thing I've always wanted to do is actually take like a drawing or painting class because I heard that sometimes you get in your head that like, it's just something you're bad at, but it's a technical skill yeah. like anything else. Like people say that about chess or math. That's very true. Casey, my wife, who's better at drawing than I am, she insists that basically she just said, you've never really practiced. And that's true. I think as a spoiled, somewhat, maybe not spoiled child, but I gravitated to, towards, and I think a lot of people gravitate towards the things that they have like a natural aptitude first, right? You really have to have somebody push you to get over the hurdle if you're not good at something at all to get good at it. <laughs> I think it has to be like the perfect environment. Just to go back to your goals to make the game more inclusive. And can you give us an example of something that like a poker player might do unintentionally, whether it's a streamer or a live poker player that might be gatekeeping, even though they have like good intentions? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> put me on the spot. I don't know. I think someone else could speak to live poker a lot more than me. I, I have very little live experience. I've probably played less than like a dozen tournaments and maybe two sessions of cash game poker in my life. In a stream, I think there's a lot of little things you can do as a streamer to welcome people in and be inclusive. 
some of it is this simple things that are just polite, like remembering who someone is, what they do, and, and including them in the chat in those ways. I think there's a lot of like assumptive talk in streaming poker for sure, where people operate from um it's very hard, I think, for a new, new player to join poker and not feel like they're way in over their head. Many streams these days are like deep in GTO, right? Deep in theory and exploits and things like that. And even myself, who I'm I'm not Lex or Michael Acevedo playing nosebleeds, you know what I mean? I still get into some of that like really jargony talk. And sometimes you need to really remember and dial it back and say like, if somebody was brand new to poker and they came to my stream, would they feel like this was something they wanted to do? Or would they be like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it's overwhelming. And that's that's not necessarily gatekeeping out minorities or repressed groups and things like that, but it's a different kind of gatekeeping, I think. I think it's being conscious of multiple ad- audiences and doing what you can. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, you're only one person. So obviously it's difficult to both speak to people who want to hear poker strategy and somebody who's a noob. Right. But that said, you can try. I think that's a really good advice, actually, the one about remembering people's names and what they do. It's just not the type of advice you usually hear in Britain poker. You usually hear it. And it's a lot easier for me to say that on Poker Stars Pennsylvania, where we have a cap on how many people kind of come from this, the client to our chat and things like that. A little bit harder for me to give that advice to say Lex, who has 3000 people in his chat. All right, tell me all their names. It definitely makes a difference. And I, and I know Lex asks people questions because I've heard him ask people questions specifically about who they are. So I, I think he, he does an amazing job of it for the, the size of streamer that he is. But things scale differently when you get larger, for sure. Do you have any sleeper streamers for us? Like somebody that people should be aware of that's up and coming in the poker space that you love? If you're on the um, U.S. side, there's a couple of Michigan guys who I think are actually starting up a dual stream of their own. Dr. Dad Poker and Ashley Olson are their two names. They've been super friendly to us on the PA side, to Nio and myself asking us questions about how to run the dual stream. I think it's the best content that I make. I don't, I don't want to speak for Nio, but I love the dual stream. We we banter and we are able to both play. And I think that's a way that we try to be inclusive and encouraging and is to show two guys playing poker. And yeah, we're competing, but we are cheering each other on like crazy. We are having fun. We are bantering. We're not like slumped down in our chair, grinding out another session, you know? Actually, not being overworked is a way to be more inclusive because like if you're doing a dual stream, that means that you guys have more time to take a breath and reply to a newcomer's question. Whereas if you're writing solo, obviously that's always going to be harder. We basically every dual stream have like a driver and a passenger and it's a lot easier on the passenger because the driver has to kind of manage the stream and do all the general streamer things. And it's even a little bit beefed up because you have to sort of monitor the other person's tables and make sure you're showing the right table when they're talking about their hand and things like that. It, it definitely frees up the uh, your, your counterpart to interact with chat a little bit more, keep the commentary flowing, ask questions and everything for sure. That's great. So you guys switch up the roles. Yeah, we, we alternate basically. I outlasted him in a, a charity event that we went to and the bet that we had was I get a carte blanche, like you have to drive tonight. <laughs> so I still have that in my back pocket. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> you guys prefer being the passenger, I guess. Being the passenger is is more relaxing for sure. For the listeners, can you tell us more about your and Nayo's dual stream and when we can watch it? For a while now, we've been doing it every Thursday, I think 
for the foreseeable future. We'll be doing it every Thursday on the official Poker Stars channel. Actually, we used to alternate our own Twitch channels, but now we're over at twitch.tv slash poker stars every Thursday night. That's fantastic. And of course, if you go to Nio's channel and Accidental Grenades channel, you can find them the rest of the week, many different streams. And I'm sure that yeah. when you're on the Poker Stars channel, you are also hosting them. So if they go to your channel, they'll get there. And that's a great tip about the Michigan streamers as well. You said Dr. Dad and Ashley Olsen. Yeah, I've seen them as well. So yeah, now it's clicking Michigan because <laughs> poker was recently regulated in Michigan. So we had New Jersey first, then Pennsylvania, now Michigan, and hopefully many more to come. Yeah, many more to come. Well, thank you for your time. I, I really enjoy talking yeah. about this hand, King 10 offsuit, small blind versus button spot. You know, it gave me a motivation, actually. I was like, yes, I want that hand because... <laughs> it gave me motivation to like, you know, think about that spot and the different stack sizes. Very useful as an inspiration for study. We had Accidental Grenade um, on Twitch, PokerStars PA streamer. You can find him at WhoopsBoom on PokerStars or on Twitter. And he took King 10 Offsuit. Thank you so much for having me on, Jen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.